Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and this is my podcast. It's mostly for parents of children with cancer or leukemia, but it's also for anyone else who's involved in caring for children with cancer or leukemia. And I'm a paediatric oncologist here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, Australia, and it's January 2021. And I hope that 2021 is a better year than 2020. Today I want to talk about something called minimal residual disease. Now this is most relevant these days for the care of children and adults with leukaemia and lymphoma. And in particular for acute lymphoblastic leukaemia I suppose. But it's probably going to have a place in more and more diseases, including some of the solid tumours. So uh, it might be of interest to others. But at the moment in modern paediatric cancer care, it's in very routine use in uh, caring for children with leukaemia and lymphoma. And that's where it's most relevant. Anyway, let me explain what's going on, what it's about. Minimal residual disease. And you'll hear the Uh, term used, MRD perhaps, MRD is minimal residual disease, and I just want to explain what that's all about. So let's start with uh, a child that has leukaemia. When a child has acute leukaemia, and when they're first found to have leukaemia, they've had a bone marrow test, and usually what we see is that most of the cells in the bone marrow are leukemia cells. So instead of seeing multiple different types of normal cells everywhere doing what they're meant to be doing, making blood cells, we see the overwhelming majority of cells to be leukemia cells. And that's the problem, of course. That's why the bone marrow isn't working and the blood counts are low because the bone marrow isn't pumping out normal blood cells. That's acute leukemia. Now what we do is we give our chemotherapy drugs and in the case of acute lymphoblastic leukaemia we usually find after a month that if we repeat that bone marrow test well we can't see so many leukaemia cells. In particular we might see that the uh, level of leukaemia cells with a microscope is under 5%. So it might have been 95% at the start of the month, but after a month of treatment, it's under 5%. So we're seeing just occasional leukaemia cells, and mostly we're seeing normal bone marrow cells. Now that's a really good day. That's called being in remission. And for the first few decades of caring for children with leukaemia, that was what we knew. We knew about a remission defined as less than 5% of the cells under the microscope looking like leukemia cells. Now we knew that there was still leukemia there and we kept going with drug treatment and bit by bit we worked out to give these drugs and those drugs and uh, eventually uh, get rid of the leukemia permanently in the great majority of children. But we also knew that there were patients who were in remission, that is less than 5%, who were cured of their disease and there were ones who were under 5% and in remission but they would go on later on in treatment or years later to have a relapse, that is for the leukaemia to grow back. 
So among those children who were in remission, there were obviously some that had more residual leukaemia and less residual leukaemia. But the problem is, just with a microscope, we couldn't work out exactly how much leukaemia is still there. Part of the problem is that leukaemia cells look very much like certain normal cells under the microscope. And so distinguishing which are the normal ones and which are the low-level leukaemia ones is quite difficult. And it was all of these difficulties that led to scientists developing better ways of measuring how many leukaemia cells are still present. And that's the measurement of minimal residual disease. So we're talking about various ways in the lab to measure how many leukaemia cells are still there. And I'm going to talk to you about three main ways that this is done. What actually happens in modern leukaemia care, though, is that we give our chemotherapy and we use a microscope and look at the bone marrow and hope to see that the patient is in remission, that there's less than 5% leukaemia cells. But we also use these new tests of minimal residual disease to measure more accurately how much leukaemia is still present. And then when we get to that stage where we really can't see any leukaemia with the bone marrow, well, these tests remain very important. These are tests that can detect one leukaemia cell out of 100,000 normal bone marrow cells or even a million normal bone marrow cells. So we can detect one malignant cell in a million normal cells. Now, that's something you can never possibly do with a microscope. So that's why you need these tests. What we do is we uh, perform the tests on the bone marrow at the start when we first find the leukaemia and then after a few weeks of treatment and at various time points along the way. And we've worked out that if it's below a certain level of leukaemia, well, that's a favourable finding. But if the leukaemia level is persisting at higher levels, then that's a bad thing. And even though we can't see it with a microscope, we can detect levels of leukaemia that are associated with a poorer outcome and that can be a reason to change our treatment. For instance, we might see that the leukemia level is, say, 1 in 100 or 1 in 1,000. And depending on what stage of treatment you're at, if it's that high, that could be an unfavourable finding, a bad finding, and that could be a reason to reclassify the leukemia as a high-risk leukemia. It may mean that we should look at giving stronger doses of drugs and different drugs. And it may even be a reason why we consider a bone marrow transplant. So in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, these measurements of this MRD, minimal residual disease, are in very routine use all the time to guide us through treatment and tell us something more about what we're achieving. You know, in those decades past, we would give our drugs, have the patient in remission with the microscope, and really then we were treating in the dark. We weren't able to monitor leukemia levels anymore. Uh, we couldn't see the leukemia. We just knew it was out there. And we had to just give all of our drugs and then hope that we were eradicating what's left. Well, with the use of these MRD techniques, now we can uh, measure more accurately what's going on. 
Today I'm going to talk about three broad ways that we measure this minimal residual disease. And the main one that we use, I'm going to talk about last. That is the one that we're using very routinely in almost every patient with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. That's the one I'm going to leave till last. It's the most important one, but it's a bit more complicated to explain, so I want to deal with the other two first. The first technique for minimal residual disease I want to discuss is using something specific to that particular type of leukaemia to trace its presence in the bone marrow. Perhaps it's best if I give an example. There's a type of leukaemia called chronic myeloid leukaemia. Chronic myeloid leukaemia, or CML. And this is much more common in adult patients, but we see it in children and adolescents as well, chronic myeloid leukaemia. Remember, most leukaemia in children is acute leukaemia, a a fast-moving leukaemia, one that rapidly uh, proliferates and makes a child unwell quickly, uh, but responds very quickly as well to our drugs. For now, I'm talking about this chronic myeloid leukaemia. Well, some decades ago, some smart people worked out that the leukemia cells in chronic myeloid leukemia had a particular abnormality in the chromosomes. You remember chromosomes. Remember we have 46XY if you're a male and 46XX for female. And they're the chromosomes. They're these big, long structures within each cell that are made up of DNA. Now, what was worked out was that the leukemia cells in CML regularly had an abnormality affecting chromosome 9 and 22. The chromosomes all have numbers. And there was this thing called a translocation. And a translocation means section of chromosome 9, for some reason, got itself attached to a section of chromosome 22. So chromosomes 9 and 22 are meant to be separate chromosomes, separate bands of DNA, nothing to do with each other. But in CML, the cells had this abnormality where chromosome 9 and chromosome 22 were sort of stuck to each other in a very particular way and it actually led to the uh, generation of the leukaemia as it happens. Well, this chromosome, this Uh, 922 translocation got the name the Philadelphia chromosome because that's where they discovered it. And the presence of the Philadelphia chromosome ended up being a very important test that you would use to confirm that a patient really did have chronic myeloid leukaemia. We would do the bone marrow test, we would look at it with the microscope and say, well, this pattern of abnormal cells looks like chronic myeloid leukemia, but then we would do uh, what's called a cytogenetic test, a chromosome test, to see if the Philadelphia chromosome was there. And scientists called cytogeneticists know how to prepare the cells in such a way to study the chromosomes, and then we could look at them and see if this translocation between chromosome 9 and 22 was present. And if it was, then that really confirmed that the diagnosis was chronic myeloid leukaemia. 
And that's just one example. There's dozens now of these uh, translocations that we find in different types of leukaemia that indicate to us what particular type of leukaemia is present. So infant ALL, the, the one that the very young babies get, they commonly have a chromosome translocation between chromosomes 4 and 11. In certain types of acute myeloid leukaemia, there's a translocation between chromosome 8 and 21. In acute promyelocytic leukemia, there's a translocation between chromosomes 15 and 17. And people like me, we sort of know all these translocations off by heart and go looking for them, and they're very important. But for today's discussion, they become a very useful way to work out if the leukemia is still present. So let's go back to that chronic myeloid leukemia. And at the start, we would have found a lot of cells that have this Philadelphia chromosome present. And that confirmed for us the diagnosis. Then we would give treatment and hopefully see the bone marrow cells looking more normal as the leukemia cells were eradicated. But an extra way to look for the persistence of leukemia cells was to see, can we still see the Philadelphia chromosome in the cells that are present? So we'd take a bone marrow, uh, get the chromosome lab to analyse it, and look for any cells that still had the Philadelphia chromosome in it because that would indicate they were leukemia cells. And eventually we had different ways of talking about remission in chronic myeloid leukemia. For instance, we might say the patient was in a morphologic remission when the cells looked normal under the microscope. But some people with bone marrow that looked good under the microscope still had the presence of the Philadelphia chromosome, this 922 translocation. So when we got rid of all traces of the translocation being present in cells, then we would say they were in a cytogenetic remission. And so a cytogenetic remission was a better thing than a morphologic remission. Then a whole bunch of different ways of looking for the Philadelphia chromosome were developed. And these apply to chronic myeloid leukemia with the 922 translocation, but they apply to a bunch of other translocations as well, depending on what particular DNA abnormality is present in that particular type of leukemia. Three different ways to look for these translocations. First off was the one I already talked about, where we get the chromosome lab to uh, make a chromosome preparation of the cells and just to look uh, with their special microscopes for the presence of the Philadelphia chromosome. And the second way to do this was with a very cool technique called FISH. FISH stands for Fluorescent In Situ Hybridization. All right, let me explain this one just because it's interesting. To do a FISH test you have two different probes. Now, a probe is a, a chemical that will bind to chromosome number 9 and it will have a certain colour attached to it, let's say a green colour. And at the same time, you have another probe that will uh, bind to chromosome 22. So you add it to a cell, it'll just stick to chromosome 22 and nothing else. And let's say that one's red. 
So we've got a green probe for chromosome 9 and a red probe for chromosome 22. Well, we get a bunch of cells and we throw on the probes and stir it up and then look at it with a microscope. Now, what you should see, you should see the green probes stuck to chromosome 9s and the red probes stuck to chromosomes 22, but you shouldn't get the red and the green stuck right next to each other. So if you look at cells and the red and the green are always sort of right on top of each other, well, that's telling you that chromosome 9 and chromosome 22 are stuck together. And that's telling you that the Philadelphia chromosome is still present. So that's called fish. And the third way to go looking for uh, things like the Philadelphia chromosome or other leukemia translocations is with the DNA techniques. And uh, in particular, the one that's used is called PCR. PCR, polymerase chain reaction. You've probably heard a lot about PCR because PCR tests are what are used to look for the COVID-19 virus. So when they do a test on a nasal swab, they use this PCR to look for the DNA of the COVID-19. Then PCR is basically a technique where you identify a particular DNA abnormality that you want to look for and you design these things called primers, they're chemicals, and you add the primers to the DNA from your bone marrow cells and then you look and see if you can detect the DNA you're looking for. So if you're looking for the Philadelphia chromosome, you design a set of primers, these are chemicals, that are set up to only detect that 9 to 22 connection. So if there is a strip of DNA in the test tube that has a bit of chromosome 9 and a piece of chromosome 22 together, well, this PCR test will amplify it and amplify it and produce millions of copies of it so that we can detect it. And there's all sorts of ways to use this technique to measure exactly how much Philadelphia chromosome is present. Of those three techniques, the PCR one is the most sensitive one. It's the one that can really detect, you know, the tiniest amount of leukemic translocation still being present. So now we talk about a patient with leukemia being in a morphologic remission, if under the microscope they look to be in remission, or we can talk about a cytogenetic remission where we can't see any DNA chromosomal changes of the leukaemia using conventional cytogenetic chromosome tests, or they can be in a molecular remission, and that's where we've used this PCR test to really uh, look for the tiniest trace of residual leukaemia. And uh, that's the the best level of remission, I suppose. That would be one way of describing it. So that's the first of the techniques I want to talk about today for measuring minimal residual disease. And just to summarise that, that's a technique where we have a certain type of leukaemia and we know that all the patients with that leukaemia have this same DNA abnormality, same chromosome abnormality in their leukaemia cells and we can set up a technique to go looking for that particular abnormality. So we can have a set of chemicals and tests designed to look for the 922 chromosome translocation 
in chronic myeloid leukemia. We can have another set of tests and reagents ready to go to look for the translocation between chromosomes 15 and 17 in acute promyelocytic leukemia and so on and so on. And many leukemias have a very typical DNA chromosome translocation abnormality that we can use on all the patients with that particular leukemia. So that's the first technique that uh, I'm discussing today. Now let's go to the second technique. The second technique uses something called flow cytometry. Flow cytometry. And this one might be referred to as flow MRD or it might be FACS, F-A-C-S, M-R-D. A flow cytometer is a machine that we can use to measure chemicals on the surface of cells. So on the outside of uh, the cells of the bone marrow, uh, we know that normal cells have different chemicals on them. Let's take an example. We know that uh, normal lymphocyte cells, for instance, all have a chemical on the outside of the cells called CD20. That's a normal thing. They're all called CD something, cluster designation it stands for. So we know that normal lymphocytes have this chemical, CD20. We know that normal bone marrow stem cells have a chemical, CD34. And there's dozens and dozens of these different chemicals and we know what cells they're meant to be on. And so we know that normal lymphocytes will have a certain pattern of cells and normal neutrophils will have a different pattern of cell surface markers and stem cells will have different cell surface markers and so on and so on. Well, it turns out that leukemia cells don't obey the rules that leukemia cells often have cells on their surface that don't fit with any normal cell. Uh, so they don't have just that pattern of cell surface chemicals that fits with a normal lymphocyte or a normal neutrophil or a normal stem cell. They've got a few cell surface markers that belong to one type of cell, but they've got some that belong to another type of cell. And this is because leukemia cells aren't normal cells. They're mixed up. They're doing abnormal things, and this is what you call an aberrant distribution of cell surface markers. So to set up to do minimal residual disease testing using this flow cytometer, well, we take a bone marrow sample at initial diagnosis, and we run it through the flow cytometer, and we measure all sorts of different cell surface markers, chemicals, and we identify a pattern of these cell surface markers that is present on the leukemia cells but would not normally be present on any normal cells in the bone marrow. So we've generated a leukemia-specific pattern of these cell surface markers. And so for each patient, we've now identified the pattern of these cell surface markers for their particular leukemia. This is generated for each individual patient. We know that their particular leukemia cells at the initial diagnosis had a combination of chemicals A, B, C, G and M, let's say. And that was a pattern seen on their leukemia cells 
but it wasn't seen on any of their normal cells and it's never seen on normal cells. So now we know how to track that patient's leukemia cells based on the cell surface markers that we can detect with the flow cytometer. Now what we do is when we've given chemotherapy, it might be on day 15 or day 33, sometime later after treatment, we take another bone marrow sample and now we process them through the flow cytometer in a particular way to look for that patient's particular pattern of leukemia cell surface markers. And so if we find those cells still to be present, well, we can measure them and we can say, yes, we found them, they're still there, they're still 5% of the bone marrow cells or 1%, or maybe we can say we couldn't detect them by flow cytometry and that'd be a good thing. So that's the second way of measuring minimal residual disease. It's using a flow cytometer to look for cell surface markers that we have identified as fitting into a pattern for that particular patient's leukaemia and we can go looking for those cells subsequently during treatment. And again, our protocols will have certain uh, levels of this flow MRD that Uh, indicative of treatment working very well and there'll be levels and we'll say if it's above a certain figure well that's an undesirable sign that's a reason to think we might need to use a high risk protocol or even a bone marrow transplant and we've learned that if it's above certain levels you know we'll become worried that uh, if we just keep doing what we're doing well that won't be enough and Uh, It may be that that patient's at a higher risk of having a relapse, so time to think about doing something different. Now, it's a very expert technique, by the way. You don't just order a flow MRD test at any old lab. You need really uh, seriously trained scientists that know all about this flow cytometry thing, and it's it's really got to have a lot of quality controls attached to it and people that are Uh, maintaining their machines well and running all the control samples and they need to be really expert people. And now we get to the third technique for measuring minimal residual disease. And this is the one that's in very routine use in children and adults with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. And I guess that's because it's It's in many ways, it's the best way to do. And the problem with the first two I've mentioned is they won't apply in all patients. So that first one, remember I talked about the Philadelphia chromosome and certain other translocations that you see in patients with leukaemia. Well, there are patients that don't have one of those abnormalities and so you can't use that technique on them. And the same with the flow cytometry technique. Firstly, It's a bit of an art, that flow cytometry system. You really need very expert uh, scientists and they're making complex judgments about patterns and it's got to be very standardised and well-controlled. And even then, uh, there are patients whose leukaemia cells just don't have a, a pattern of cell surface markers that's so different from normal cells that you can confidently say that's leukaemia and that's not. This third technique I'm going to talk about really can apply in just about every child with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. This is going to get a little bit complicated, so just try to stick with it for a minute as I try to explain what's going on. 
Let's start with the most common form of acute lymphoblastic leukemia that we see in children. And that's the one where the leukemia is a cancer of something called a B cell, a B cell. When you talk about lymphocytes, those white cells called lymphocytes, we have in our body, we have B cells and T cells that all got their names back in the 1960s or something for some obscure reason, but don't worry about that. So we have B cells and T cells. And most children with ALL uh, have a cancer of one of the B cells. About 15% of ALL is a cancer of the T cells, but I'll just talk about B cells for now. What do B cells do normally? The normal role of B cells in our body is to make antibodies. You know, antibodies, these things, these chemicals that run around your bloodstream and help you to neutralize infections. They're called antibodies. So when you have a vaccine, the aim of the vaccine is to stimulate your body's B cells to make a whole lot of antibodies against that particular virus, for instance. So if you have a immunization against chickenpox, varicella virus, the aim is to uh, stimulate your body's B cells to multiply and make lots of antibodies against the chickenpox virus. And that's what B cells are meant to be doing most of the time. They're meant to be making antibodies that are floating around our bloodstream, helping us to fight off different infections. So we have hundreds and thousands of different B cell types. We have B cells that are pumping out antibodies to chickenpox. We have B cells that are making antibodies against measles if we've been immunised or if we've had a case of measles. We have B cells that are producing antibodies against tetanus. We have B cells that are making antibodies against hundreds and hundreds or thousands of different targets. So each of those B cells is a little bit different to the other B cells. And the way it's different is the gene in the B cell that makes antibodies is just a little bit different in the B cells that make chickenpox antibodies to the B cells that make measles antibodies or tetanus antibodies. So we've got these hundreds and thousands of different families of B cells running around our bloodstream and their genes, their DNA or the antibody gene is just a little bit different in every B cell and that's how they make all the different antibodies. And that's how the system works and that's why we've got antibodies against multiple different infections and that's why we don't usually get chickenpox more than once and we don't normally get measles more than once and it's because our body's making these antibodies and we're protected. And hopefully we'll have COVID-19 vaccines that work and then we'll be making antibodies against COVID-19. And so if we encounter COVID-19 at some point, well, we'll already have some level of defence against it and hopefully it'll stop us from catching it in the first place or it'll stop it from becoming a more severe illness. So that's the whole aim of a COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, now let's get back to leukaemia. So all those normal B cells have uh, genes for antibodies that are slightly different to each other. It turns out that B cell leukaemias, 
Well, they also have an antibody gene or an immunoglobulin gene that's different to the rest of the body's B cells. So the leukemia cells, and if there's billions and billions of them, they'll all have the same DNA structure for this antibody gene, the immunoglobulin gene. And that's what we can use to detect leukemia cells going forward. What we can do at the very start when there's a lot of leukemic cells around is we take the bone marrow, we extract the DNA, and it's mostly leukemia DNA, and we look at the DNA sequence in that antibody gene, so in the immunoglobulin gene, usually the immunoglobulin heavy chain gene as it happens. But anyway, we can use all of our clever DNA molecular tests to work out the exact sequence of DNA that's in the antibody gene of the leukemia cells. So we do that at diagnosis and we store that bit of information and then we've got it. Now we treat the child with leukemia and we take a bone marrow sample, say at day 15 or day 33 or day 79, various time points. Now we have to go looking at that bone marrow and see if we can find this leukemic DNA gene structure to be present in the bone marrow. So if we do a bone marrow test on day 33 and we say, look, there's hardly any leukemia to be seen with the microscope, well, now we can take the DNA from that bone marrow sample and look at it very closely, again, with that PCR test to look for the leukemia-specific DNA, the antibody sequence, the immunoglobulin sequence of DNA that we worked out at the original diagnosis. And again, we're using that technique I talked about before, that polymerase chain reaction, PCR, the one we do to test nasal swabs for COVID-19 and the one that they use on uh, CSI to detect saliva on the cigarette butt and then prove who committed the murder. These are techniques called PCR to find tiny, tiny, minute amounts of DNA. So we use that technique on the bone marrow and uh, we can work out whether it's one in a thousand cells contain the DNA of the leukemia or one in a million or none at all. And this is all very helpful for us. This is uh, what we use to tailor our treatments to work out are we happy with the way the drugs are working? Is the leukemia going away at a fast enough rate? Or is it persisting at a level that tells us, no, not good enough, need stronger drugs or different drugs or even a bone marrow transplant? Now, what about the children that don't have B-cell ALL? Well, yes, there's that about 15% of children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia who have T-cell ALL. Well, a similar principle applies, except it's not the antibody gene as much in T-cell disease, it might be the T-cell receptor gene. But the same thing applies. We take the bone marrow at diagnosis, we look at the immunoglobulin gene, we look at the T-cell receptor gene, and we work out what is the DNA structure that was present 
in the leukemia cells and then later on in treatment we use PCR testing to look for the presence of that DNA structure being present. And we use that polymerase chain reaction, PCR, to see if we can still detect that DNA and if so, what level is it at and is it increasing or is it decreasing. And this is really the one that we're using all the time because, like I said, you can use it in just about every child with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. They'll just about all have some abnormality that you can use to distinguish leukemic cells from normal cells. Now, this is still a very high-tech system. It also requires very expert people and people who are doing these tests every day of the week. And there's a lot of science behind it and a lot of clever interpretation. And it's not a routine test to be done just by any pathology lab anywhere. It's really got to be set up uh, with all sorts of very stringent controls and very expert scientists with PhDs and uh, very smart people. Let's just recap one more time. Uh, three techniques for measuring minimal residual disease in acute leukaemia. So the first one was to go looking for a particular DNA translocation that you see in all patients with that type of leukaemia and different ways of looking for them. The second was using a flow cytometer machine, a flow MRD, looking at the cell surface markers of the leukaemia cells. And if they are sufficiently different to any normal cells, we can go looking for any cells that have that pattern of chemicals on their cell surface. And then the third way is using PCR to amplify the antibody genes in a sample and see if the antibody genes that were found at original diagnosis are present or the uh, genes for the T-cell receptor are present and if so, at what level. That's called a PCR uh, test for minimal residual disease. And by the way, a lot of these tests might not even be done in every children's cancer unit. It might be that there's one big national centre that's running samples for the whole country or it uh, might be that there's just three or four centres in a country and everybody's shipping bone marrow samples there to have them all processed. It really is a, a very specialised expert system to set up and very expensive too, by the way. Uh, so it's the sort of thing where you would have a core facility, some sort of central lab that's running them. And if you're in a big uh, research trial, a big international multi-centre research trial, they might say they all have to be run at the same lab so that we, we, we know what the quality's like and we know the results are reliable and everything's very standardised. So again, you don't just ask your doctor to send a sample up to the local pathology lab for these. These are really high-tech tests, but they've really transformed the treatment of leukaemia. Now, what about diseases apart from leukaemia? Well, uh, there are some uh, assays like this that are being used or have been studied, I wouldn't say that in very routine use, very regularly, they might be applied in certain specific situations. In neuroblastoma, there was a test some years ago for a chemical called tyrosine hydroxylase, and you could uh, go looking for that particular gene in the bone marrow, and that might indicate persisting neuroblastoma. 
there's all sorts of techniques being developed for something called liquid biopsy. And liquid biopsy is uh, taking a blood sample and looking for tumour or cancer DNA in the blood. So it might be a tumour in a, a bone or breast cancer or somewhere and you just take a blood sample from a vein and look to see is there tumour DNA presence in the blood. Now, there are still, I guess, experimental techniques. They're all being researched and developed and not really used in routine management of a, of a particular malignancy. But I think they've got a future. I think they're going to become part of what we do as a routine in the coming decades. Anyway, uh, that's minimal residual disease. Techniques for detecting one malignant cell in the midst of, say, a thousand normal cells or a million normal cells. They really can detect a needle in the haystack. Uh, very specialised tests need very expert people, uh, hugely expensive, and really need to be applied in a very methodical way. Oftentimes they're being used within a research protocol to guide decision-making based on what levels are being detected, etc. Totally transform the treatment of acute leukaemia and I think they're going to do the same in the treatment of other malignancies in children in the years to come. I hope you've understood all of this and enjoyed it. Uh, it's a complicated area. Next time you see your paediatric oncologist and just say, what about the MRD, doctor? And when they say something, you say, yeah, but was it by flow cytometry or did you use immunoglobulin heavy chain and that'll just put them on the back foot and I think that's always desirable but for now I'll leave it there I'm Dr Jeff McCowage paediatric oncologist here at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney Australia and I'll talk to you next time bye bye